Thank you, Jane. And good morning. We have gathered to worship the living God. May his life fill us and move through us. Um, our call to worship this morning is taken from Psalm 107. I've set it up responsively, as I often like to do. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask two things here. One, that we read responsively, and second, that we get that TV monitor going so I can see as well. This will be tricky. Um, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Oh, tell you what, let's not try that. Okay, we're warming up here. Okay. In the biz, they call that dead air. The biz. Okay. Turn to the person beside you and say, we'll make it safely to the end. Okay. Let us do focus our hearts on God and worship of him. Our responsive reading this morning from Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands from the east and the west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Part of our faith is remembering the stories of God's grace in the life of his people and in our lives. Um, I want to just follow the instructions. Here's one I got from last week, a handsome stick figure with a tie, so that must be me. And he says, welcome, let's sing. So let's stand and do exactly that. Hymn number 193 is, I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's stand, if you're able, and sing together.
Amen. And have a seat if you would. It's always a joy to welcome you. We've gathered here on site to worship the Lord, one heart, one voice, gathered in his word. But we also have the chance, and I welcome those who are being a part of this online, whether through the live stream or through the recorded um, version. It, it lets us who are here be welcomed into your space and bring the hope of the gospel. So we gather in that way. Very thankful and excited that we've been able to grow and learn to do that. Um, some things for later today. We will have our fellowship time afterwards. And then um, at about 10.15, I'm planning to get together in classroom one, our regular follow-up with the pastor. It's a time that folks can ask questions, respond. We interact, some things with a sermon, that sort of deal. So uh, those are the two things for the rest of this day. I'm, again, very thankful for the opportunity we had last week on Easter, really to celebrate that pivotal historical event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also to welcome folks uh, in the grace and glory of Jesus. In your bulletins, you'll find a first quarter finance report. Um, I'll leave those details to you if you have particular questions. Uh, if you come to me, I will say, sure, let's go find Norlin or Larry or Darwin, somebody who can actually answer the question, or you can go directly to them. How's that? So those folks will be able to answer. I'm thankful that we're still on track um, and aiming to pay all the building debt by January 1. I'm thankful for the ongoing support and that we ended 2021 very strong, uh, even as first quarters typically start slow. Uh, we're watching and uh, careful. Really appreciate your support in that. A couple of slides for announcements and things. Um, tomorrow morning, a group of men, uh, and I think all of us right now are from celebration, but we gather, we read a book, have breakfast, and then with the book we've read, we ask one another, what did you underline? So it's a great way to have conversation digging in with that. I've got more information in the email that went out, but uh, talk with me after the service if you'd like. We have a spring flower basket sale. This is actually a fundraiser to support our Honduras mission uh, work and also um, an online contact card. If you're visiting or want to make sure that you get the Thursday night email that I send with celebration-specific information, just text the word CONNECT to that number and you'll get a form and you can do that. We're always happy to um, keep up with one another and just share information with you. Um, it's our habit to remember the faith that was given once and for all to the saints. We're not figuring out what we believe. We're conforming our hearts and lives to the gospel that was given and that has been passed generation to generation. We do that. One way we do it <clears throat> is by uh, coming to the Heidelberg Catechism, a great statement of uh, biblical faith. And so let's look at question 28. I'll begin with a question. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. 
We live under the grace of God's goodness and love. Um, let's sing together first two verses of this hymn, 559, 10,000 Reasons. If you're able, stand and join with us. <laughs> Have a seat if you would. <clears throat> Let's turn to the Father and pray together, shall we? Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks for your kindness that to a world that often stands broken or rebellious or fearful, you have reached out that the Lord Jesus would lay aside his glory and enter into our brokenness and pain and that he would take that upon himself and all its penalty and consequence at the cross so that he might give to us the life that he had. Thank you for that new life. We pray together for Heart Awake Ministries that we might be a lighthouse of that kind of new and transforming life, not of our effort, but of God's good grace and intention. We thank you for this new series in Colossians where we will look at Jesus who is the mystery and the glory of God. Open our hearts to see Jesus in fresh new ways and to know him. We pray for the various ministries of Heart Awake, those near like Neighbors Plus, those that gather on Sunday to worship, uh, the three communities, our children's ministry, those throughout the week, our student ministry, gems, cadets through the winter. And we pray too, Father, to the other utter ends of the earth, 
that the gospel may be known through our missionaries and those who are um, extending your grace there. We pray for Watershed and for Pastor Aaron, for the ministry that will go on there. Uh, we pray for Fusion and Pastor JB as he preaches, and in just a few hours for Pastor Florencio, who will pray and, and preach in Spanish in the gathering of Mission. Thank you that your gospel is drawing people together of every tribe and tongue and nation in this moment. Father, you've called us to be an expression of your grace here in this community called Celebration. Help us to love one another and to welcome others well. I'm going to, as we've done of late, I'm going to give you space to pray for those who are sick and recovering. Father, there are many in our midst. Hear your people as we lift specific names and circumstances to you of the sick and recovering. And Father, it has been for months now a season of grief. Um, we pray for those who are in the journey of grieving, that you would walk with them like you did those on the road to Emmaus who themselves were grieving that day, but who met you and saw a whole new life. Be encouragement to them. We pray for them by name. Take a moment. Father, I pray in particular that you would pour out your Holy Spirit among your people here, that you would enable each one of us for the service you've called us to, that you would gift us and guide us to welcome well, to pray, to be a part of the worship arts, to be gifted for children's ministry, for hospitality, for preparation, for service in all its forms, that the world might look and see not a gathering of people, but a people drawn by Jesus and empowered by him to make the gospel known. Be renewing grace for celebration. Father, we pray for those in authority over us and in our monthly rotation, we pray this week for the Heart of White Council and for our leadership, that representative body who seek to hear your voice and to minister that in terms of leadership for this ministry. Guide them. Be with the Neighbors Plus board that meets tomorrow night and the things we'll be facing there. Lord, finally, we pray that your gospel would go to the utter ends of the earth, that what you're doing here is not meant to stay under a bushel, but meant to shine for all to see. In particular, we pray for a peace with justice in Ukraine, that you would turn back invaders and bring shalom and fruitfulness to a land, safety and peace. Lord God, we thank you that you dwell in the midst of your people to empower our prayer. And so we ask that you hear our prayers as we pray one heart, one voice together using the words that Jesus gave us saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. 
Well, we begin a new sermon series this week. We're going to spend about seven weeks working through the book of Colossians. And we've entitled this, let me see if I can press forward here. Yeah, Jesus, the glory and the mystery of God. This is taken from uh, Colossians 1.27 where Paul refers to the riches of this mystery that Jew and Gentile would be brought together in the church, the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Jesus, we see both a mystery and a glory of what God is doing and what he has for us. So we'll be back to preaching, you know, through the whole book. I'm going to start this morning with uh, chapter 1 verse 1 and go through verse 14. Uh, you can follow on the screen as they page forward, but listen to, to the Word of God from Paul to the church in Colossae and to us. It begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Now, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Now, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that, so that you may live in a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, namely bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the, in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you rescued Paul from the kingdom of darkness, his own moralistic Phariseeism, and you brought him into the glorious kingdom of your son, the kingdom of the gospel. And you took all that he was, you transformed it to become all that you intended him to be. So that years after that, he would find himself in a prison and praying without ceasing. Help us to learn from his prayer. Thank you that his friend and traveling physician Luke would write the story of this time in his book called Acts, but that Paul would write to this church that those 
letter, that letter would be preserved and then across the centuries come to this moment that we might open it and hear where you have committed yourself in writing to speak to your people. Holy Spirit, lift as it were the ink from the page and press it into our hearts and minds that we too, like the church in Colossae, may bear fruit and be joyful all the things that are the evidence of your good work. Thank you for your kindness this day. Guard your people from my brokenness and confusion. And in your kindness, be present. For we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said together, amen. And amen. I was very taken by this phrase from Paul right in the text there, when we pray for you. And this week began to be a time that I could meditate through this scripture, see how Paul prayed for his church, and begin to ask myself, how do I pray for the church that God has called me to shepherd? Uh, many of you know that I have a little organizing app on an iPad that takes care of my prayer life and keeps things together. It helps me pray for um, the Muslim people during Ramadan this time. It helps me pray for each one of you. Everybody who's connected to celebration gets prayed for several times a week by me. And I ask myself, when I pray for them, do I pray like Paul does? And it was a very helpful week because there was conviction there that often I don't. So let me in on, let you in on some of the lessons that I learned through this week. We were getting started in Colossians, and one of the first things I always like to do is think about just some of the introductory issues. We've been in the book of Exodus, essentially, and we've uh, followed the storyline. It was kind of Moses' memoir of how he was called and how Israel was led out of slavery in Egypt. That was kind of a, a memoir, grand narrative. There were centuries between when it was written and when we have the texts. We're in a very different place with Colossians. Colossians is a letter. It's an epistle. It's something that Paul wrote to a particular group of people in a particular situation out of which we learn. Now, it was written by Paul. It says that in the letter. And its recipients were the believers in the city of Colossae. This was a church that had been apparently planted by Epaphras and that Paul had never been to. It's unusual in that way. These are people that Paul doesn't know personally, and it's a church that he apparently did not plant personally. Now, here's an interesting thing. As best we can tell, we believe that this book was written about 62 AD. That's roughly, and all these numbers you've got to hold loose, about 30 years after the crucifixion. It's close and there to see. And something happened in Colossae between about 60 and 64. It would have been probably right after this letter. There was an earthquake that essentially leveled the city and it was never rebuilt to its former uh, size and glory. So this letter arrives shortly thereafter, years, though perhaps hours, Shortly thereafter, there's an earthquake. It's preserved and it comes to us now. And this is a very interesting letter because we have copies of Paul's epistles um, that are very close to when they were written. I want to see if I can show you one. See if this will get up there. There's 
a copy, a scribal written copy of all of Paul's letters on papyrus. This is a picture of what one looks like. It's called P46. It was a collection about 100 pages front and back, written in Greek, and it's less than 100 years after Paul would have written it. Half of it, this particular folio, half of it is in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland, at the Chester Beatty Library. This page you're looking at, which has Colossians on it, is there. But do you know where the other half of that folio is, that Greek document? The University of Michigan Library. Half of that is in Dublin. Another half is in Michigan. And less than 100 years after Paul would have written it. And we can't do it in that picture, but I was able to look at that Chester Beatty papyrus in Dublin, see a photograph of it, get close, and read it. And it says very clearly, pros Colosseus, palos apostolos Christu Jesu, diathelamatus theokai Timotheos. I can read the Greek to within a hundred years of when Paul probably through a secretary would have written it. This is an extraordinary testimony to the importance of what this is. So the earliest copy, probably written about 150 AD and dramatically close for ancient documents. You'll never get that close to Plato or to Aristotle, to Plutarch, even to others more recent than Paul. We have remarkable evidence. There it is. I, I saw during the week, if I had the money, I could buy a photographic copy of the whole book, Paul's epistles in their earliest papyrus form. Wouldn't that be something for your coffee table? Well, Paul writes the church in Colossae. It's in a place that he's never been, though it's close to the city of Laodicea on what is modern Turkey. And he addresses these people, though he doesn't know them, with a family term, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. And he knows they've been evangelized. He mentions in verse 1-7 by a man that he knows, Epaphras. And what I want you to see is that though he's never been to Colossae, and though he did not know anyone personally in the church, he still uses the language of family relationship to refer to them. Their family, because in Christ they are adopted together. So, friends, it's brothers and sisters in Grand Rapids and in China and in Ukraine and in Honduras. We are made one family through the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's a family sort of relationship, and it points us to another key principle. What is going on here is that Paul comes to faith and he disciples people. And those disciples make disciples that make disciples. It's very interesting. How does the faith pass? It doesn't pass simply by knowledge. Discipling speaks to something much more life on life, much more formative. Two people share life together. One person has learned how to navigate life in light of God's Word 
praying, sharing life, and then they walk together through the issues of life. It's not a program, it's a shared relationship. But a disciple of Christ is to make a disciple who can make disciples. Do you see that? Disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Paul shares the gospel with Timothy. Paul and Timothy evangelize and disciple Epaphras. Epaphras goes to Colossae and a church is planted. That's how the gospel moves. And the gospel can move that way whether the church has any power in the world or not. See, I want to tell you, I think we in the United States have grown up through a time that you'd almost call Christendom. When I first started ministry, what I was as a minister and a Christian was by and large encouraged by the culture around me. I could go to a, a public meeting and say, hi there, my name's Pastor Bill Lindner, and folks would say, oh, glad you're here, Pastor. We're, we know what you do. We appreciate that. We're glad for that. The culture encouraged. And when you live in a time of Christendom, often what happens, the church becomes, can, becomes drawn to try to make people who conform. You conform to the culture. And you can conform to a culture whether your heart's been touched or not. Now, I know in my own life, I was first evangelized. God began to work in my heart. I was conformed to the culture. And because the culture I lived in was pretty supportive of Christianity, my life grew. So things can happen that way. But I want to tell you what happens when the culture changes. If our focus has been on helping people conform. When the culture is opposed to the gospel, then conforming to that culture will lead us away from the gospel. This is why the focus in the New Testament is not on build a Christian culture and then conform. It's on disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's why we send missionaries off, not to change a culture but to make disciples who can make disciples. Now you hope over time, and certainly I've lived through this, where there's enough disciples that they begin to impact a culture. And that's a great thing. But the way the gospel moves is life on life, disciple by disciple. And so Paul will write as of a family relationship with people he's never met because he knows they are in Christ. Here's a question, who discipled you? Who were the people that God used life on life to kind of help you learn to pray, help you see Christ in the scripture, help you know how to sort through decisions? Here's a follow-up. Who are you discipling? Now, you're here, and that's a good step. You're encouraging me to keep pouring forth the gospel. But I want you to see this vision that I get from the New Testament, that for me, it's about life on life that creates lives by the grace of Jesus that can impact other lives. That's how the gospel moves forward. Well, in this letter, we see that Paul is praying for this family he's never met, but whom he will spend eternity with. Ponder that for a while. Wow. I've never met Pastor Wang Yi, the Chinese lawyer who came to faith in Christ planted a church, deeply discipled by someone who discipled me through his books, John Calvin, is now in prison. But I'm going to get eternity with Wang Yi. I can hardly wait. 
So knowing that we'll be with his family, Paul is praying for them. And he prays for them uh, with thanks. He prays because he's heard of your faith and your agape, your love for all God's people. He sees that the gospel has taken root because it's bearing fruit. And he writes here, Colossians 1.5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Do you hear that? Those three terms, faith, hope, and love. You're going to hear that regularly in Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, faith, hope, and love, but love is important. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, again, he writes about faith, hope, and love. This is a key theme that moves all through Paul's letters and in his ministry. But here's where I spent most of my focus this, way, this week. It was in Paul's continual prayer. I prayed and read through uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so I want to dig through that a little bit and then kind of apply it in some ways in the time we have left. And just reading through this, listen to it. It begins with a focus on the action that Paul and his missionary partner Timothy undertake. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God. That's the content of his prayer. It's continual. It's ongoing. And what does he ask God? He asks God that God would fill them with the knowledge of his own will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So this is Paul's prayer, his ongoing prayer, that God would fill the people in the church with knowledge and wisdom, and wisdom that comes from the Spirit. Very interesting. At this point, the church of Jesus Christ has no resources. Paul could not pray, and I don't think he would have prayed. I pray that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through a seminary degree. Now, I've got a couple of those, and I'm thankful for them. They're helpful. But the tools you get in seminary are different than the knowledge of his will that the Spirit gives. They're not contradictory. These tools should help me get a better sense of that. But the minute I begin to say, well, I've got these tools, I'm not concerned with that, I've stepped away from the gospel. Paul prays, and he would pray for all of you like I do, that you would be filled with wisdom to make the decisions of life, to speak the words and questions asked and relationships given. The wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, that'll take time in the Scripture, that'll take time in prayer. You'll want gospel-centered community. But you need something that God is given. He goes on to write in verse 10. Well, let's begin again. We continually ask God to fill you, verse 10, so that... We ask this, so we get that, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Then he begins with four participles. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please Him? Four things. And I want you to see, just real briefly, looking over my shoulder, that I don't press this on the Scripture. I read it carefully. I analyze what's there, and I see four 
verbs that are used as adjectives. These four verbs tell you what it looks like to live a life worthy. What does a life worthy look like? It's this, it's bearing fruit in every good work. Paul will write about the fruit of the Spirit. He's already done that in Galatians. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is that fruit gonna look like? Love, joy. I told Mary Lynn while we were walking yesterday, I've never been so aware that the church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit fruit of kindness. In an angry, aggressive world, the Spirit at work to make us kind to people who are not kind will stand out like a light. I want to fill you with knowledge so that you can live a life worthy. And there'll be four ways that it shows. First, bearing fruit in every good work. Then growing in the knowledge of God so that over time, I know God and his ways better. Being strengthened with all power. The word there is dunamis. According to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Why does God give you strength and power? So that you can be productive and be a good employee, accumulate a lot of money? No, God wants you to have great endurance and patience. How does that sound? The only way you're going to see endurance and patience born in your life is if you're long bothered. Do you want me to pray that you have great endurance and patience? <laughs> Paul did. But you've got to understand that's going to put us in some difficult situations that will try our endurance and try our patience. And then in the middle of that pressure, we will begin to experience a new work of the Holy Spirit that says, I can make the end of the race. I can love those who don't love me. I can be kind in a world that's unkind. So bearing fruit, growing, being strengthened, and then giving joyful thanks to the Father, the attitude of gratitude. A perspective of heart that affects how we see. I'm thankful for the beautiful day we had yesterday. I'm not bothered by what it's going to be like this afternoon. Always giving thanks. Joyful thanks to the Father. And then finally, Paul goes back to the gospel and he begins to clearly define the Father that we give thanks to. This Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. This is the Father. He's active. He's working. The Father is described with a verb. He's a God who rescues. He's a God who brings us from place A to place B. And he does that by way of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Friends, think of that. God is at work. I began to see this week that Paul has a view of prayer that I would call joining God in his work. Let me unpack that a little bit. Paul sees God at work in the life of this church at Colossae. Isn't that what we've seen in that passage? I see you bearing fruit. Ah, that's God. I'm going to ask God that he give you what you need. Think of that. Paul sees God at work 
in the world and in the lives of people. And his prayers are such that he wants to join in what God is doing. You know what was missing in Paul's prayer that we just read? There was no request that their circumstances be changed. Look over your prayer life sometime. One of the good things about journaling your prayers is you go back and look and see, what am I praying? Take notes when you pray and ask yourself, what am I praying for? I was struck by how often I'm asking that God change a person's, your circumstances. Paul doesn't pray that way. He does at other places, so it's fine to do. But here, Paul prays very specifically that what God is doing in their lives would continue and increase. That God who is active would affect these people in ways that made a difference. You see, Paul wasn't so much concerned about changing their circumstances as he was about the way that God could change them in their circumstances. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor Bill. I was looking for my best life now. That's a different religion. God is sending you as the seed of the gospel to school, to work, into your neighborhood, into your families, into relationships. And what we want to see is the Spirit of God bringing us a wisdom so that we can enter in and bear fruit that we can be a changed people who affect our circumstances. Let me give you a concrete example of what this looks like. And this is a hypothetical illustration. It's not one from my life or anyone I know here in Holland. But imagine you have a child who is in prison. Would you pray that they get out of prison quickly? Having visited in prisons and knowing what they're like? Yeah, I would pray that. Prison is a hard place to be. It's not where you would go or send somebody to be transformed. Believe me. So would I pray that they get out of prison? Certainly, but that's just a change of circumstance. Imagine if your child is there because of a deep heart of pride that thinks to himself, I'm above the law. I'm entitled. If that's the root of the criminal behavior that got them there, it may just be that God wants to deal with that pride. Maybe that's where we ought to pray. Or maybe my child is so insecure about life in the world that they're influenced by dysfunctional criminal friends, peers that lead them in dangerous ways. I remember about the time I was graduating from college, I realized that the coolest kids in my middle school were just getting out on parole. I want to tell you, there are social influences. And if there's an insecurity that sets our kids up to be affected by those social influences, maybe God wants to deal with that part of their heart. Maybe God would want to use them as an instrument of grace inside the prison. I don't mind changing circumstances when they're bad, but also, like Paul, I want to get a sense of what God is doing in the real world and real lives around me and join with that. The question becomes, what is the Father doing in these circumstances? Now, I want to tell you, we need to ask that question with a humility, with a sense of mystery, 
I'm not saying that I can answer that question and say, well, God's on my side and he's not on their side. No. But I've got to lay down my life. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice, so I'm going to listen because I'm his sheep and I want to hear the great shepherd and I want to join with in the spirit what God is doing in these lives. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. So he needs to transform my ways so that I can join his. Friends, I want to tell you something. It's good news. If God is real and if he is good, he is even able to take the mistakes we make and the evil actions of others and to work them for his good purposes. Then we need to ask, what is God up to in these broken, hurting circumstances. Do you believe that you can join God in the spirit through prayer and be a part of changing things in the world around us? That's how Paul prayed here. He believed that his prayers, even though in prison for people he'd never met, moved in the spirit in a way that lives, circumstances, people would be different. I began to realize that Paul sees the world in a particular way. He sees at least four different spheres or aspects. There's the physical. He's in prison right now. There's the personal, his own life and feelings. There's the social, his friends and groups that are in power. But there's also the spiritual. Think of those four. I think I've got this on a slide. Ah. Is it the next one? No, it must not have come through. Oh, there it is. Hoorah. Thank you for finding that. You see, he sees the world physical, personal, social, and spiritual. Paul, by this time in his life, has seen how God can affect all four of those. Do you remember Acts 16 where Paul and his missionary friend Silas are in prison in Philippi? Luke is with them in the city, though not in the prison. So he's a first person involved in the experience in Acts 16. God causes an earthquake. That's in the physical, isn't it? God affects the physical. There's an earthquake. The door of the jail bursts open. The jailer sees that and he's consumed with fear. That's a personal, psychological, emotional even situation. Paul shares the gospel with him, and the Holy Spirit awakens his heart and mind to receive it. So God, Paul sees God change the personal in that person, the jailer. Through that, God begins to gather a church. There's already been Lydia and the slave girl who was set free, and now the jailer and his family all come to faith, and a church is planted in Philippi. The church is there and will affect the social relationships. The church from its very beginning, when it's faithful, has resisted slavery, has uplifted the poor. It's been a social influence for powerful things, all because of what happened in the spirit. Paul sees a world with physical, personal, social, and spiritual. Luke observed and participated in that. He was a doctor. So he was trained in physical treatment. Now, if you were to take Luke, put him in Doc Brown's DeLorean and bring him all the way back here, time traveled to this moment, 
Luke, I think, would be amazed at how we have advanced in the physical, our ability to treat sickness. But you know what I think would utterly surprise Luke? Is how often many of our churches are so atrophied and lost in the realm of the spirit. We're good with the physical, we have technology. But do we have the prayers of Paul that function in the realm of the spirit? What is God doing? And that affect the social, the personal, the physical. It's even possible that folks begin to say, oh, we're so good in the physical that there is no spiritual. You've heard that. I wanna suggest to you that that tries to oversimplify reality. Imagine touching all four things rather than just three. This has really been moving through my mind and I've been drawn to, to ponder this. You see, we, I recently listened to a book. It's you know, been in the New York Times bestseller. Interesting book on church history, an area that I've got some training in. And it covers about 150 years of church history. It's written by a tenured professor at a church-related college. And I don't want to engage the book so much as give you an overview of what happens. In 150 years of looking at church history, there's a lot of focus on the physical and all that's changed with technology over 150 years. And there's a lot of focus on the social and the different groups and the power dynamics that happened. This group has power over that power. And so there's a lot of key people and their personal and emotional insight. And it's fascinating how this tenured professor at a church-related college or university can look at 150 years of physical, personal, and social activities and reflect on it and have a best-selling book. What's missing? God any sense of God. Now, this author will quote people talking about God, but only as it means their personal stability. Only as they're able to lead a social group and movement. But there's no sense of a living God who acts and interacts physically, personally, and socially. You see, I think Luke would look at the church and be amazed to see that we often live like functional atheists. None of us here would say we're atheists. But I wanna ask you, what motivates your heart? What do your prayers look like? Are prayers for your own well-being? Prayers for the simply changing the circumstance of others? Or do your prayers connect with a real God in a real realm called the Spirit that join with what He is really doing in the area of society, in the area of personal, in the area of the physical? How do you pray? It's easy to pray as if the Spirit does not exist at all or is so removed and distant and powerless as to be irrelevant. Friends, I want to invite you as we go through Colossians and indeed for the rest of the, your life, certainly as long as I'm here in Holland, 
I want to invite you to begin to explore a new adventure. When I put up this term, functional atheist, there's some things I don't want you to be drawn to. Please don't look at that and think, oh, shame, I've fallen short. Oh, no. Pastor Bill will think less of me if he thought that was me. If you have a sense of that, I want you to hear instead an invitation to more than you could ever ask or imagine. There will be people who hear that and what I've just laid out and think, oh, come on. I'm a thoroughly modern person. I want to suggest to you a thoroughly real person understands all of these spheres, not just some. Capability in one sphere doesn't mean you've grown in another sphere. So don't feel that press of shame. Don't feel, oh, that's only for someone else. This is what Paul is calling us all into. Lives where God is giving us wisdom. How would you like to love people with a greater wisdom? God can give that, the scripture says. How would you like to, to put up with people <laughs> who are hard to put up with? God can give that. A change of here, a work of the Spirit that affects our physical, personal, and social lives as well. We can join God's work. We can serve people by praying and a prayer in the Spirit that affects real-world lives that changes us, and then we become instruments of change. I hope you hear that as an adventure. Lay aside the shame or lay aside whatever else may block you from this. Hear the call to an adventure and enter in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're calling us to a, a, a whole new season. And so I pray you'd begin to uh, calm our fears, give us insight where we need to see things differently, fill us with a hope. But I pray you'd call us to yourself in the gentle, still place of prayer, and that you'd call us to your work, that we, like Paul, might pray for family we have not yet met, and that through the prayers that we join with you in the Spirit, people would see fruit born in lives that affect persons and societies. Give us a, a transformative new vision of this fourth dimension, if you will. Help us to see and to know and understand. Risen Christ, I thank you for the great glory of your love. Shape us and guide us. Fill us with all hope, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. This hope grows out of the risen God. And so I wanted to continue to sing some um, Easter hymns. We're going to sing hymn number 187, Thine is the Glory. Um, hymn number 187. As you're able, let's stand and sing together.
receive this benediction, a blessing from Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians. May the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.